Aaron has reminded us of uh, more yet about what it means to be the church. And I think it was Norm's very clever idea uh, some while ago to, to title this whole series about church as to be or not to be. Of course, a famous line from William Shakespeare. And go to that place. Is that Macbeth? I think it's in Macbeth. Hamlet. I was close. Um, yeah, very good. He's deciding whether he's even going to continue living. It's a very emotional moment in that play. To be or not to be. It means to live or die. And Christians, this is what we're wanting to, this is why we called this series by that title. There's a choice we need to make. Not only am I going to live for Christ, but am I going to be part of being his church? This is a very, very high ticket item in God's eyes. So this morning, in making our way along and being the church, we want to look at being givers. Here's a scripture to help us set uh, our course. It's in Romans 15, verse 15. It says this, God has enabled me by his grace to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Of course, that was Paul's clear calling in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Did you know if you're an evangelist, you're a priest? It's an interesting thought. In the priestly service of the gospel of God so that when you read the epistles, let your antenna go up whenever you see the phrase, so that. Because it's God saying, I did this in order that this might happen. I did A in order that I could do B. I'm asking you to do A in order that you'll then be able to do B. That's a so that. And Paul has one of his so that's here. I have my ministry as an apostle and an evangelist so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Backdrop to that, those verses is this. In the early decades of the Christian faith, the people that in some ways that were struggling the most against persecution and financial deprivation were the Christians in Judea, the birthplace of the faith. People out of a Jewish background who had committed to following Jesus but then ran into very intense, very severe opposition and persecution. Property confiscated. You read Hebrews chapter 10. You can see it in there. They had their property confiscated. They would lose jobs. They'd be disowned by their families. It was hard to get a job if you were a Christian in that Jewish context. And they were financially deprived. So as Paul was making his way across the Gentile cities of the Roman Empire, he was seeing many, many, many people come to Christ, and because their circumstances were different, they had financial resources better than their Jewish brothers back in Jerusalem and Judea. So wherever he would go, Paul would say, can I ask you to consider sending a contribution with us when we go back to Jerusalem so we can minister it to the poor saints there. Now that's the circumstance that Paul is referring to in Romans 15. He's working so that the offering of the Gentiles, that means the contributions 
that these new Christians in Rome, coming out of a fully, totally Gentile background, the contributions they were going to make, and some of them already had done this, that Paul and his associates would take back to Jerusalem to give to the poor Christian saints there. Now, notice the language Paul uses to describe this, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He calls it an offering. Usually when we hear the word offering, we think of what we're giving to God, like the offerings in the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. Well, that's exactly what this was. They were giving cash to give to Paul, to give to the saints in Jerusalem. But Paul said, that's just if you look at it, look at it at a horizontal level, what's really going on is it's vertical. It's really an offering going up to God, like the burnt offerings in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Being givers is part of our destiny. Paul's ministry was not simply to see people saved. Paul's ministry was to, to see people saved, justified by faith, washed in the blood of Jesus, all those wonderful things. But he's saying here in Romans 15, 15, it doesn't stop with that because then we move on and we become not just forgiven people, we become giving people. We become givers, being givers. It can mean money. It can mean time. That's one of my challenges. I always feel busy, and someone will ask a favor of me or say, or invite me to go for coffee or something like that, and I surprise myself. I often feel my, find myself saying, well, I'm too busy. Well, that's baloney. If we're givers, we have time for one another. Being givers means being generous with finances, with time, with emotional energy. You all know what emotional energy is? Someone calls on you to do something and you groan, oh no, I just can't face that. Well, that's being stingy with our emotional energy. Can I appeal to myself and to all the rest of us here this morning? Let's be givers time, money, emotional energy. Let's see what this means in practical terms. Being givers is about valuing something. Being givers is about valuing God's glory. If we go back to the book of Exodus, the people of Israel have come out. If we have, could have the next slide, that would be great. There's a real fancy picture I painted. Here it is right there. The, the people had come out of Egypt... And they hadn't been out of Egypt very long before the Lord said, I want you to begin a project. I want you to begin building a place where my visible manifest glory can dwell. Now that all sounds great, but when you start pondering it on a practical level... The place that, according to the instructions God gives Moses and the Israelites, especially in chapters Exodus chapters 25 and following, it was going to be expensive. It called for things like gold and silver. And it called, it called for curtains made of very, very, very expensive fabric and, and, and so forth. This was not a small project and not an inexpensive one. So these former slaves had in fairly short order after their salvation experience at the Red Sea, they had to become givers. 
And in order for them to become givers, they had to value something. They had to value the prospect of God's manifest glory coming and dwelling in their midst by making a place for it to dwell. They had to value that more than the possessions they had which would, if they surrendered them, become part of that tabernacle. So they had brought gold out of Egypt. Remember when they were leaving Egypt? After all that had gone on in the great plagues and the battle between Moses' God and the Egyptians' gods, at the end of that, the Egyptians were so worn out by all this, they were just, they were glad to get rid of Israel. As the people were leaving, they came out and started giving them gold, and most of the gold the Israelites possessed was Egyptian gold. It's one of God's delicious sense of humor moments. He took, took gold from the idol worshipers and used it to become a tent for himself because he's God. But the people had to value something. Please don't let, us, let this slide by us. They had to value the prospect of God's manifest presence dwelling in their midst more than their possessions, more than their gold. Here's part of what God says to, to Moses. From every man whose heart moves him. You see, this was a, a free will offering. This was not a tithe. It was a free will offering. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive. This is Exodus 25, 2 and following. And there's a longish list here, but I won't read the whole thing. But it was expensive stuff. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine twisted, fine, tw- fine twined linen. I'd rather have God in the midst of the people than have this gold. Do you see, to turn that corner, they had to value something more than something else. Being givers means valuing God's glory. We see a parallel moment to this when we come into the New Testament. This time, interestingly, can we have the next, there we are. This time, interestingly, it's Gentiles getting into the act of valuing God's glory. The Magi probably were from Persia. The New Testament just said they came from the east. And his scholars think they probably were, were from Persia. But through observing the signs in the heavens that we are into some form of astronomy or astrology, and this star represented the nation of Israel, this star represented kingship, and those stars came together, ah, Israel's going to have a king, and the God of all creation is arranging it. So they go on their journey as part of the Christmas story. They arrive in Judea, Jerusalem first, then Bethlehem, and then this wonderful scene where they bow on their knees, they get down on the ground, and they worship this child, and they bring out gold, gold again. Frankincense. Frankincense, by the way, is simply a form of incense, but it's one of the best kinds of incense, and I don't want to harp on this, but it's one of the most expensive, and that's what they bring out, gold. It says they, well, I'll read it to us. Uh, Matthew 2, verse 11 And going into the house, the the star stopped moving over that house. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, I love that phrase, opening their treasures, 
opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, not for the first time in this story, frankincense and myrrh. I wonder what it had cost these men to acquire all of that gold, all of that frankincense, and all of that myrrh. Well, we don't know, but it was all expensive stuff. And they're making a decision in this scene that the painter has given us of valuing this child, this new Messiah, this new king. They value his presence in the world more than the gold, the frankincense, and myrrh. Being givers means valuing God's glory. You're hearing a lot this morning about toing and froing between Winnipeg and England. My good friends here are talking about making that trip. Well, Velma and I just made that trip, but we just did it the other way. We just came back from England about 17 months ago, give or take. And we lived there for 11 years. We've been part of Gateway, as most of you know now, for decades We moved to England in 2005 and then came back in 2016. Shortly after we arrived there in 2005, I worked at the Salt and Light Bible College. One morning, one of the other teachers there invited someone in to speak just for one morning, not a series of lectures, but just one morning, mainly to give his testimony. He was a missionary slash pastor in uh, Argentina. And he told an absolutely enthralling story about faith-to-face-down obstacles. He and his wife, starting with a very small and not rich group of people, had started a church in an economically deprived area in Argentina. And because there was poverty, people do what they think they need to do to get along. And in this area, one of the big problems was a very serious drug trade. And as this fellow was ministering in this town, he felt the Lord keep tapping him on the shoulder. When are you going to speak out the way the Old Testament prophets did? When are you going to speak out the way John the Baptist did about public unrighteousness and crime? When are you going to speak out as part of the ministry of a prophet? Now, of course, he was scared because he knew that the drug people locally didn't play softball. They played hardball. Oh, gee, what will they do if I start preaching against them? But the Lord wouldn't let him off the hook. So he started preaching in the pulpit on Sunday mornings against drugs, saying, if you're, anyone here this morning is involved in that, you need to repent and turn away from it. Well, the, drug, the local drug lords pay, repaid the favor by burning down their church. Well, you know where you stand if somebody burns down your church. And shortly thereafter, they, they had to move back into a rented facility. They had built this church building themselves with their own money and old, own hard work. For a little while then they met, as you would, in a rented facility and they were still trying to get their heads around what had happened. Lord, how could you allow this from a really nice newish building to nothing, to just ashes on, on the ground is all that's left. What do we do? Do we rebuild? What do we do? They were struggling to know which way God was nudging them forward. In one of their meetings one evening, he was sitting there, this was his testimony, and he heard someone stirring a few seats down from him in the pew, and they get up and start walking up to the front of the room, and he looks, and it's his wife, 
And she goes up to the front of the room, like this room here. There's a table, and on the table was the, the offering plate that they would usually, usually use to collect the, the, the offerings. And she stands there. It was not melodramatic. It wasn't a lot of show. It wasn't ostentatious. She just very quietly goes like this. And off comes her engagement ring. And into the plate it goes. He said it was like something in heaven exploded. And people just spontaneously were getting up and coming and giving. Some of it was IOUs, some of it was cash gifts, some of it was jewelry, wristwatches and whatnot. You know what they did? They rebuilt. But it began when someone said, I value Christ's presence in this community more than I value that diamond. Being givers is about valuing God's glory. Being givers is also about trusting. Now, that was about trusting, wasn't it? Putting your diamond ring in the offering. Being givers is about trusting God. When we go back to the book of Leviticus, which is one that in detail explains about how to do offerings and sacrifices at great length. It goes on for chapters about offerings and sacrifices. Here's something, a phrase that comes through repeatedly. This is the second verse of the book of Leviticus. You shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Now, because we don't live in the same culture as people back then did, that statement doesn't hook our attention. In those days, that would have hooked your attention real quick. Because what it said was, when you bring an offering, God's interested in where you got it, where you're getting this animal. He doesn't want a stray that you found wandering around somewhere. He wants an offering from the herd or from the flock, and that meant from your herd or your flock. Herd flock implied ownership of the livestock. Whose ownership? Well, me, each of us. There's resources that we have. And when we are ministering something to the Lord, when we are being givers, we have to trust him because when I give from the flock or from the herd or from my wallet, I'm going to notice something's missing. A hundred bucks is missing or whatever. And the natural question comes up, well, wait a minute. How am I going to manage? We're already tight. How are we going to manage if I give that amount to the Lord? I do value his presence, but there's a practical side to this. I have to pay the bills. This is where trust comes in. We see a parallel moment to that from the flock and from the herd, sacrificing something that's yours even at financial risk. We come into the New Testament, a bit of a favorite scene for me, Mark chapter 12. Jesus has now finally arrived in Jerusalem, and this is in those final dramatic days that will lead up to his arrest and his trial, his crucifixion. And he makes a visit to the temple with his disciples, and they see the poor widow. You all know this story, I assume. They see this poor widow come in, and there's an offering box there in the temple. And this is where people will come in and bring their offerings, their gifts. And apparently, she had been preceded 
by a number of fairly wealthy people that were coming through with big bags of, of coins and gold and whatnot, and somewhat ostentatiously with a lot of show, had been putting these coins into the box. So they make their way through with great flair and flamboyance, and then this humble widow comes in, and she reaches over and puts in two copper coins. Apparently the word here for the coin, the kind of coins, they were a very small denomination. But for her, it was a bigger gift than the bags of gold were for the rich people because they gave out of their wealth, and percentage-wise, they really weren't giving all that much. She gave everything she had. Jesus even tells the disciples, you know what, that's her last two copper coins on planet Earth. When she put that in there, that was it. Maybe she still owns a house. Maybe she has a little place where she stays. Maybe she has other resources, perhaps. we don't. But as far as money, this was it. Being givers means trusting God. She has to come to terms with the question, when the coins drop into the box, how am I going to buy my food? How am I going to pay the rent? Well, you know, we don't know all the answers to the question as far as that lady is concerned. But we know, I'm sure, God looked after her. Being givers means trusting God. In Philippians 4, Philippians, someone has uh, called Philippians the world's or the church's first missionary thank you letter. And that's a good description of the book of Philippians. If you read through that letter, it's a great book to read. It's only four chapters. You could read the whole thing this afternoon quite easily. You see Paul's thankfulness and appreciation to the Philippian Christians. And reading between the lines, you can pick up that of all the churches that Paul worked with, if there was one that was the most consistent and loyal and generous with supporting Paul's mission work, probably that award would have to go to the church in Philippi. He says this, Philippians 4, I'll start in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift. I'm not out in this to get money for me from you guys, he says. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Do you know something? If we get on board with this building program that Gateway's talking about, down the years, we're going to see ministry to needy people take place that couldn't have taken place without the building. So giving at this point in time is an investment in God's honor, in the expansion of the kingdom, and in the needs of people. That's the fruit. I seek the fruit that that increases to your credit, says Paul. I have received full, full payment. He says, I'm not needing more money. I'm doing okay. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you Philippians sent. They are a fragrant offering. Once again, money that goes horizontal, Paul says, no, it's really vertical. It's a fragrant offering to the Lord. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. All this Old Testament offering imagery Paul is using to describe the transfer of cash. Now notice this. After he says, I'm doing fine, thank you for your gift, I think he's probably thinking... Some of them are thinking, gulp, what did I ever do committing to give that much to Paul or unloading my, emptying out my bank account for Paul? What have I done? How am I going to pay the rent? 
So those fears are trying to creep back into the minds of some of the Philippians. And here's what he said. This is verse chapter 4, verse 19. Knowing, I, I think he's knowing, because he's a pastor, the kinds of anxieties that will press in on us and why being giving, being givers, means trusting God. 419, and my God, Paul tells the Philippians, my God will supply every need of yours. He's the one that doesn't get a regular salary. And he's telling them, my God will supply every need of yours. Don't worry. You've been generous with me and with the ministry, and God's going to be generous with you. Being God means, pardon me, (laughs) being God, God knows what it means to be God. Being givers means trusting God. He goes on to, our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Velma and I haven't yet, as far as I recall, uh, made contributions to the expansion, the building expansion. But in earlier years, uh, back when we built the Panet Road Church, we did. And the amounts we actually gave were, for us back then, significant. And I remember vividly, after I put the check in the plate, the next morning waking up and thinking, what did I just do? I don't know if anyone here struggles with, you know, what ifs and second guessing yourself and second thoughts and so forth. I had a serious attack of what did I just do? You know my answer if I face those kinds of fears? It's what Paul tells the Philippians, my God will supply every need of yours. After you've given even, maybe you think you gave too much. Well, God knows. He will look after you. Being givers means valuing God's glory. Think of the diamond ring going into the plate because she wanted Christ's presence in that community more than she wanted the diamond. And being givers means trusting God from the flock and from the herd and not a stray animal you found wandering around. You go out to your own sheep pen, which means going into your own financial resources and you take one of those animals Because that's what pleases God. We value him and we trust him even when it means sacrifice. Thirdly, finally, being givers is about being poured out. Being poured out. Another one of my famous paintings here. There we are. Philippians 2.17 Even if I... And to be poured out. That's an interesting image Paul uses. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering. So there's two offerings in this verse. There's the drink offering, but that's getting poured out onto another offering that's already been given. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I I'm glad. I'm getting poured out, and I'm glad. I'm getting poured out, and I am glad. Drink offerings in the Old Testament, where you would, on, on top of it, Jacob does one uh, when he's fleeing from his brother and he builds an altar and he, he praises, he worships God there at this new altar he has built, and then he takes 
He pours, I think it's, it's either oil or wine, I can't recall, over the top of it. And it's, it was a drink offering. I think that's the first example. It's in Genesis 32 in, in there somewhere. Later, drink offerings took another turn, another way that it could be used, where you would put an offering on the altar, like an animal you'd slaughtered, or wheat, a load of wheat and sheaves of wheat up on the altar, light it on fire, and then, as it burned very carefully, so you didn't burn your hand, you would pour wine or oil right into the flames. So your drink offering was being poured on top of another offering. And that's what Paul, that's the way Paul sees his own life. The real offering he's implying is the faith of the Philippians. And he's this supplementary extra just to bring God that much more glory that gets poured on top of the sacrificial offering of the Philippians' faith. When oil comes out of a bottle, the oil itself can't control where it goes. Chew on that for a moment. That oil coming out of the bottle or wine or whatever this was, it has no control over where it goes. Paul says there's times I'd rather go north, and God says go south. And he has to say, well, okay, Lord, you know, and it's my job to let you pour me out. Being poured out and being glad in it as Paul says he was, it means saying yes when my emotions are saying no. And then on the back of that, learning to be glad in it. The oil goes where it's poured. And Paul is okay with that. Being poured out means doing the emotionally costly thing. Having the difficult conversation writing the email to somebody that you know you need to get hold of, whatever it might be, there are times when what you know you need to do has got an emotional price tag on it. And that's part of being a giver. This whole thing isn't just about money. It's about us. We become the offering when God pours us out. Let me conclude with a little story about the time I felt probably more safe than I'd have ever felt before or since. I became a Christian when I was 17. A few years after that, I went away uh, one winter to Urbana. Some of you will know what Urbana is. It's a big, really big missionary, uh, student missionary convention that InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in the States does. They do it right between Christmas and New Year's, and they do it every third year. It's usually December 27th to 31st, I think, and they do it every third year. It's been going on for many, many, many decades, and I went to one, I think it was 1971. I'm not sure which, exactly which year, maybe 1970. Anyway, it was in the town of Urbana, or still is, in the town of Urbana, which is a suburb of Chicago in the States. They have these things in a big indoor stadium, uh, and they would get 15,000 people at them. It was, it was a big event. The year I went, John Stott was one of the speakers. Um, uh, Elizabeth Elliott was one of the speakers. And it was th- every single speaker was, was thrilling and very, very compelling. The final evening of the conference... 
you know how these things all end with a, a committal service where you're going to, are you going to accept God's call to go to the mission field? And I think I was emotionally ready for it. I guess I was. And I thought, I hope they don't get really manipulative on this, on a, with the music playing in a certain way and all going down to the front and dedicating ourselves. They handled it in a very sensitive way. They just said this, look, if you want to make a commitment tonight simply to go wherever, whenever, however, that you're relinquishing your control over your future. This is scary when you're 20 years old. It's scary when you're 67. Are you ready to relinquish? They didn't say, come and join this organization or go to that country. Nothing like that. They just said tonight, we're asking all of us together, are we ready to relinquish our control over our future? They're saying, are you you willing to let God pour you out? They said, in a moment... We're just going to say, anybody that wants to make that commitment, just to stand up. They made a few more comments, and they said, okay, ready? Five, four, three, two, one, let's stand. And I stood. The majority, the clear majority of the people in the meeting that evening stood. It was probably 12,000, 13,000 people stood up. As I stood, I had an unexpected feeling. I felt safe. Because I had let me myself, I was committing to let myself get, oh, I lost the image, okay. I was committing to let myself get poured out. That meant as soon as I left the mouth of the bottle, it was God's job to look after me. Are you with me? As soon as we surrender and say, Lord, I'm going to stop clinging to my future, stop trying to steer the cart. I'm going to let you do that wherever, whatever, however, with whomever. We're safe. That's the safe place to be. Being givers means being poured out. Let's review where we've been. I'll turn it back to Aaron. To be the church, to be or not to be. It's from Romeo and Juliet, right? (laughs) To be or not to be. Part of that equation means being givers. And being givers means valuing God's glory over everything else. Being givers means trusting God. Yikes. If I give that much, how am I going to pay the rent? (gasps) Well, it's about trust. And being givers means letting ourselves be poured out for his glory and honor. Father, we pray that these words would find a place in our hearts. Lord, I'm not good at this yet. I've been a Christian a goodly number of years, but I'm not good at this. I ask you to help me grow in being a giver, financially, emotional energy, whatever it might be. I pray you'd help all of our friends here this morning. Whatever you want to say to us this morning about being givers, we pray you'd make it very compelling and very clear. In Jesus' name, amen.